Ross Ulbricht is serving a double life sentence without parole for all nonviolent charges for creating a website. Please help free this peaceful man. Go to freeross.org and sign and share the petition. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dissecting Liberty podcast. My name is Liberty Zero. You can call me Zero. And uh, I'm joined by, by my co-host, Cotton Arkist, Liberty Hello. Cotton. And uh, today we're going to be talking about private property and uh, why that's so, import- uh, so important and uh, how really it's the foundation of libertarianism. Are you ready, Cotton? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. So first... I want to talk, or I want to start with a quote from Frederick Bastiat in his book, The Law. And in it, he says, man can only derive life and enjoyment from a perpetual search and appropriation, that is, from a perpetual application of his faculties to objects or from labor. This is the origin of property. Um, from there, we'll go on to John Locke, and in his second treatise of government, John Locke, uh, he talks about how God gave the earth to man in common, and nothing originated as private property. Obviously, he's coming to, uh, coming at this from a creationist uh, Christian worldview, and... Um, <clears throat> So he says that uh, the Earth's resources, uh, for them to be of use, there must be a way to appropriate them. And so in his uh, effort to uh, justify and explain uh, private property, he starts with the fact that man owns his own body, right? And as an extension of that, his labor and the work of his hands are his. Now, when he takes something from the state of nature, takes a physical object from the state of nature, and he mixes it with his labor, that becomes his property. He, uh, he uses an example of a man gathering acorns, and he asks the question, when are those, when are those acorns his? Is it when they're eaten by him? Is it when they're prepared by him, when he takes them home? And what he finds is that it's the labor is what makes it distinct from acorns in the natural state uh, being common to everyone. And he's thought to be the first philosopher to identify labor as the critical distinction uh, for private property. Quoting from uh, the fifth chapter of his second treatise, he says, um, God gave the world to men in common, but since he gave it to them for their benefit, in the greatest conveniences of life they were capable, capable to draw from it, it cannot be supposed he meant it should always remain common and uncultivated. 
So he's saying that God wanted us to take the earth and develop it and use it to our prosper, like to our. Yeah, it was it was God's gift to us so that we could live prosperously. Correct. So acquiring property for yourself is how you survive. Land and resources not being utilized does not further the human race. In human action, Ludwig von Mises states, ownership means the full control of the services that can be derived from a good. I would like to add that restated ownership allows you to exclude others from what can be derived from a good. And I say this um, because that's really the point of private property, and that's what differentiates it uh, from something like public property or, or whatever, right? So we've discussed what private property is. Now we need to discuss what limits there are. And really, that's property is a physical object. It's tangible. Um, in their article on property and exploitation, Hans Hermann Hoppe and Walter Block explained why property rights extend only to physical objects, but not over to the value of those objects because the argument can be made that you own the the financial value of your object but in this uh article they say that uh you, you don't you cannot have or you have a right to expect others to not physically damage your property but uh, you don't have a claim over the value so I quote from the article, while every person can, in principle, have control over whether or not his actions cause the physical attributes of other person's property to change, control over whether or not his actions affect the value of other people's property rests with other people and their evaluations. Consequently, it would be impossible to know in advance if one's planned actions were permitted or not one would have to interrogate the entire population to make sure that one's planned actions would not impair the value of anybody else's property. As well, one would have to reach a universal agreement on who was permitted to do what with which goods. Mankind would long be dead before this was ever accomplished, hence the theory breaks down as non-operational. Yeah, we can so, do that. No problem. <laughs> right. So... Uh, moving on to intellectual property, uh, simply put, you cannot lay claim to ideas. You may protect physical documentation or manifestations of your ideas, but you cannot prevent others from having the same idea as you. And so by extension, you cannot keep others from copying your ideas. I feel like that's pretty straightforward. Um, so... In summary, you cannot lay claim to the value of your property, and you cannot 
physical property is not a legitimate form of property. Uh, sorry, intellectual property is not a uh, legitimate form of property. Yeah, so, I, I have something to that I can add. Go ahead. Um, I know somebody that that owns a business, and the business is uh, mainly dealing with a specific type of software that they uh, invented, and they market it to schools. And I asked him one day, because you notice it's not in the news anymore, but there was a real big scare fairly recently during Trump's uh, first term, I guess, I guess 2018 maybe, uh, about China stealing American quote-unquote intellectual property. And I asked him about that, and I said, uh, "What would, uh, how would you feel if uh, the Chinese were marketing your software and uh, spreading it around, and you were getting no monetary benefit from it?" And he told me he wouldn't really care because what they were basically doing was spreading around a similar software. It wouldn't necessarily be his anymore because he said, you know, for one, they couldn't update it. So he could release an update and fix some bugs or whatever. And it would uh, it would be uh, a, a better software than they were selling. But he called it free marketing, basically. And uh, I, I guess the, the point I'm trying to get at is the, uh, the recent scare. I, I'm sure it's going to come back for uh, the upcoming election. But the, the Chinese intellectual property scare is, is not that big of a deal. It's, it's more of a scare tactic than anything else. Right. And it's... A lot of it is these different companies that want to maintain a monopoly on mm -hmm. their product, whether that be a physical object or some process or whatever. Um, but yeah. So moving on, we've, uh, we've talked about why private property is justified and also what limits there are on them. So now we have to ask ourselves, why are they widespread? And in his article, uh, why property rights are indispensable. Rainer Fosnacht puts it this way. Through a bottom-up process, this institution came into being organically, as Karl Menger, the founder of the Austrian School of Economics, puts it. It was not someone deciding top-down that we shall have property rights now. It came into being because people who accepted and protected property rights had an advantage over others and those who adopted the same approach. And so those others adopted the same approach. The reason property rights have to be in place is scarcity. If the world was a utopia without any scarcity, private property would not be necessary. In such a world, there would be no conflict between people over goods and services. There would be no necessity of an economy at all, as there would be no reason to trade. You could just have whatever you want. But the real world is characterized by scarcity. In the real world, not all dreams come true and human wishes stay fulfilled. And human wishes stay unfulfilled. 
Some people have certain desirable goods while others don't. And really diverting uh, from my outline here, uh, Cotton, have you ever talked to some of these communists that believe that scarcity is a product of uh, capitalism? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember uh, I remember there was a meme going around uh, in like the philosophy channels that was saying, you know, Aristotle said time was X, Y, Z. And then, uh, you know, so and so said time was X, Y, Z. And then Karl Marx said time was a tool by the capitalist to sell clocks. <laughs> but yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah, I've 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 never understood that. It's. I don't know. It, it seems so easily disprovable to me. Well, I mean, that, that, that's what you say when you're blinded by uh, an ideology, when, when you have like religious adherence to uh, a, this may not be the best way to put it, but a, a religious adherence to a, a secular ideology. And, uh, and, and you're just, unquestioning about it and that that's the main thing you're completely unquestioning about it whatever so-and-so says whether that's Karl Marx or uh, Lenin I know a lot of communists say that wasn't real uh, socialism or you know like there's a there's a popular communist uh, philosopher right now uh, Slavoj Žižek and and just whatever he says is gospel it's there, there's there's no question <laughs> and, and that's the problem yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched the movie. Uh, it's called Enemy at the Gates. Oh, yeah. And there's one scene that always stood out to me. And it was, uh, it was near the end of the movie. And um, Jude Law's character, the, the protagonist of the movie, he's the, the Soviet sniper. Yeah. He's there. And he's in this standoff with... Uh, the German sniper who's been going back and forth with him the whole time. And uh, anyway, the his friend throughout the movie, he's, he's there and he's talking about how the, the Soviet Union had, had tried to create this, this uh, egalitarian society where you know, everyone was equal and, and no one had anything that uh, anybody else, um, uh, that no one had anything that nobody else couldn't have, right? Yeah. And and then he just, he goes on to say that, you know, how foolish it was and that there was always something to be jealous over, whether it was a smile or friendship or whatever, right? And like that scene always just kind of stood out to me yeah. as pointing out just the ridiculousness of, to me that, that, that points out the ridiculousness of scarcity or of a, of scarcity being non-existent or being a, a, a construct. Yeah. I, I remember uh, Jordan Peterson once said that the, uh, the main problem with socialism is that, cause you know, the, the main tagline is uh, to each uh, according to his need from each according to his ability. He said the problem is that ability is finite, but needs aren't. 
You're, you're never going to fulfill someone just with, you know, what things devolve into in socialism, whether that be grain or shoes, you know, you can't even enter into the equation uh, like cupcakes or iPhones. But uh, it, it's a foundational misunderstanding on our ability to uh, harness things that are finite or scarce. Right. And it's not like socialism could even provide the physical goods. Um, not only that, they're just completely, uh, they leave human needs such as uh, fulfillment and yeah. you know, happiness out of the equation. You know, you never hear that really talked about. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's I, I was reading an article the other day. Or it was, I think it was last night. I was reading an article about, about uh, uh, it might have been Hoppe, and I was reading the criticisms tab, uh, and there was a critic. I don't think it was Hoppe, but it, it was one Austrian economist, and there was a criticism from uh, Paul Krugman that said, uh, you know, this economist doesn't adhere to foundational economic formulas and graphs. <laughs> And I mean, yeah. right. All right. Okay. So Paul Krugman's the same guy that said, I think in two, in 1998, he said, oh, by 2005, the com nobody's going to be using computers. Nobody's going to be using the internet. It's going to, nobody's going to care. <laughs> uh, so we ought to listen to that guy. Yeah. And you know, what are you calling foundational? And, uh, you know, what yeah, do you some, do? Something with, we came up with in the last 20 years is foundational. Right. And what excuses do you make when that, when, when your foundational uh, model, your little economic model experiences something like the 2008 crash? You know, what excuses do you come up with yeah. for <laughs> how that happened? Right. Yeah. Uh, Rothbard talks about that in Foreign New Liberty. Um, in the uh, the business cycle chapter, he talks about how uh, in uh, the 70s they entered stagflation, where there was inflation and a, uh, I'll, uh, I guess just a stagnant economy, which right. according according to the Keynesian model wasn't supposed to happen. Oh and, yeah, uh, it it went against all of their formulas and all their graphs and yeah, well. <laughs> It happens. I mean, you got you got to you can't forget that economics is largely a humanity and not a uh, a science. Right. But that's a soapbox for another day. <laughs> All right. Uh, getting back to it. Um. We read the Fasnacht quote, and uh, so we understand that property rights really outcompeted the other systems in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, so next thing that we want to get into is uh, we know that most private land today was not claimed from the state of nature through the legitimate method of uh, finding a plot of land and improving it through labor, then passing it down through legitimate transfers of ownership. At some point, the property was transferred through conquest whether that be foreign invasion or state-related 
uh, methods. So can current property titles be legitimate? We'll look at uh, Mises and in human action, he states this, private property is a human device. It is not sacred. It came into existence in early ages of history when people with their own power and by their own authority appropriated to themselves what had previously not been anybody's property. Again and again, proprietors were robbed of their property by expropriation. The history of private property can be traced back to a point at which it originated out of acts that were certainly not legal. Virtually every owner is the direct or indirect legal successor of people who acquired ownership either by arbitrary appropriation of ownerless things or by violent spoila spoilation of their predecessor. So Mises, he acknowledges that most private property at some point that initial legitimate claim was interrupted by a uh, expropriation, a violent uh, taking over of the property, right? In, uh, again, another Mises quote, he talks about uh, the illegitimate transfers of property, and he, he states that it does not necess necessitate the abolition of private property. And he says this in his book, Socialism. When we follow the legal title back, we must necessarily arrive at a point where this title originated in the appropriation of goods accessible to all. Before that, we may encounter a forcible expropriation from a predecessor whose ownership we can in its turn trace to an early, earlier appropriation or robbery that all rights derived from violence or all ownership from appropriation or robbery, we may freely admit to those who oppose ownership or cons on considerations of natural law. But this offers not the slightest proof that the abolition of, prop of ownership is necessary, advisable, or morally justified. Then in uh, The Ethics of Liberty, Rothbard, I'm not going to read the quote here, but he acknowledges that uh, not all uh, property ownership is legitimate if it's uh, if it's acquired through illegitimate means, through theft of uh, of uh, of some kind. But he does argue that unless you can prove that the current owner somehow stole the the land or the property that uh, unless you can prove it then really he argues that you you don't need to be a you, you don't need to have the property revert to, to public property or something like that in summary while illegitimate property transfers should be rectified, one cannot use historical injustices to justify the abolition of property. <clears throat> In For a New Liberty, Rothbard talks about 
how liberals and by liberals remember that he's talking about uh leftists in general it was 1973 when this book was published uh he talks about how liberals support so-called human rights while rejecting property rights he says they just they supported things like free speech sexual freedom drug use etc basically they believe that people had a right to do whatever they wished with their bodies but they weren't on board with physical property outside of that so he asked a few questions free speech how can you have free speech if the government owns the media how can you have free speech if the government owns the assembly halls uh, it's you know pretty obvious problems that come up if you don't have private property and you're also trying to argue that the government's gonna protect your rights uh, if it owns all property Um, he also brings up the example of the soviet union Um, obviously they owned all the means of production and so he says if the Orthodox Jews are, are wanting a, you know, matzah for their uh, religious purposes, can you really expect the atheist, uh, godless uh, state that the Soviet Union was to be producing matzah for them? You know, uh, that you can't you can't expect religious freedom in that scenario. Um, so anyway, I think Cotton, you have uh, a little bit to say about um, the natural order and yeah. So we understand that uh, property rights and private property is a is a foundational idea to libertarianism. Um, but even if you aren't considering libertarianism or anarchism or whatever idea that we currently have, uh, because these definitions change, we do have to realize at what cost, uh, what the cost is, rather, uh, when we divert from certain things. So I know I was acquainted with uh, the natural order in the Hayek's uh, book, The Fatal Conceit. And Hayek was a uh, a completely secular atheist. He might have said he was agnostic, but he acted very atheistic. And in the fatal conceit, he was defending a lot of of, uh, of institutions that you wouldn't think of an, an atheist defending. Like, because I know when I think of, of atheists, hey Cotton, I, uh, real yeah. quick, uh, you may have to start over. Um, what kind of mic are you using? It's like breaking up. It's breaking up. I'm yeah. using a, well, Did you, it, like, I didn't change anything. Is it still breaking up? Yeah, maybe if you unplugged it and plugged it back in. All right.
Is that better? Yeah, it seems like it is better. Okay. Um, Sorry, I just I didn't you know want to interrupt, but I. Oh um, no no that's fine. Uh, so I was I was first acquainted with the Natural Order and Hayek's book, uh, the Fatal Conceit, and he was defending a lot of institutions that you wouldn't expect an atheist, which he was to defend. Uh, number one was religion. <laughs> and uh, what he was basically saying was you can call it nature. I mean, you could call it just a scientific law or you can you can call it evolution or you can call it just uh, uh, God's path to to the most successful and happiest life. But there there are certain s- systems that we have in our world that are the most conducive to a happy life. And it's not like we invented them. You know, we did not invent private property. When John Locke wrote his second treatise of government, he did not invent private property. Right. Say the first person that wrote about private property just discovered it. Or he was the first to to uh, hit the nail on the head when trying to uh, investigate the the best possible, uh, I don't know, the best possible system of, uh, of uh, acting. But when you try to divert from that, there are dire consequences. And, uh, and, and that's what the fatal conceit is about. Uh, the, the fatal conceit is mainly intellectuals and professors trying to teach students that they can change nature. Mm. And, and my argument is that private property is part of nature. It is, it is a foundational idea that we were lucky enough to discover, uh, or we were lucky enough to, uh, Put it on such a high pedestal. Uh, that it, it's it's incredibly dangerous. To throw out the window. Right. And. Uh, I, this might be preaching to the choir a bit. But it, when, when you do throw it out the window. You get situations like. Uh, Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. And any other communist government there are plenty of them to pick from uh but it's just an incredibly dangerous thing and you're playing with fire and there's no way for it to work out it it would be like um it 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 would be like trying to change the laws of of physics it's 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 not going to work on earth i mean uh right it just doesn't work yeah the free market is one of the only systems that i know of that it takes one of the what is seen as maybe one of the negative aspects of human nature which is selfishness but what you could also call self-interest and it harnesses that 
into uh, a system in which in which people trade with each other in order to better their own position. Yeah, and, and, and try, trying to get rid of selfishness is a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. Right. It, it works with human nature yeah. instead of some authoritarian system that has this idea of, of changing a fu- fundamental part of human nature. <laughs> and, and of course, in order to do that, they, they look to state authority and violence and, and all that. That's just doomed to failure. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, Bastiat wrote about it in, uh, oh, I forget what it's called. I have the book right next to me or a collection. Uh, that which is seen and that which is not seen and and uh, Hazlitt wrote about it in Economics in One Lesson. When you try to tamper with these systems that are ingrained in nature, it, the, the wheels are going to come off of the wagon. It's 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 really bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I suppose that's what we have to say on private property, unless you have anything else to add. Yeah. Um, basically I just want to, uh, I think we both thought it was a good idea to start one of our, or to have one of our first episodes be on private property. Cause it's so important, uh, the foundation of of libertarianism and then really all discussions on hot button topics uh, they're really the libertarian arguments are, are based in private property and then secondarily through the nap the non-aggression principle which is which it's which itself is based off of private property and uh, you know, individual rights. So I hope that we did a good job with it and, uh, that, uh, now people have a, a clearer picture of, uh, the arguments behind private property. Yeah. And then on the show notes page for this episode, we will have all the, a, uh, a litany of, articles that you can read the ones we looked at and a couple extra uh, to better acquaint yourself with what what we use to get into this headspace um well on on twitter you can find me at carton cotton archist sorry and then uh for me liberty liberty zero you can find me at liberty zero uh with the O at the end being a actual zero. All right. Well, thank you for listening.